agricultural tourism <laughs> is one way to describe a day at the wineries. Like that a little bit? You kind of uh, roll your tongue a little? That's going to fall. The reason you, you're actually, air, you're, air, you're giving, you're, roll, you're really um, opening up, not just letting it glide down your tongue, but like kind of like shaking it up a bit in your mouth by rolling that air. Long Island's vineyards and farms are renowned destinations that draw hundreds of thousands, sometimes even millions of people each summer and fall. Wine, wine appreciation and, uh, and wine making really you can use almost all your senses. I mean, you taste, smell, you, you're looking at the color. It's a business that thrives on good weather, but even more so on a predictable climate. We have a very unique climate here and, and growing conditions for agriculture on the east end of Long Island. Um, some for the better and, and some for the worse. Deborah Aller is a expert on soil. Today, she and I are getting a sample of Kareem Masood's wine at his vineyard on Long Island's North Fork. So we, we actually label this wine as a dry table wine. Now when you taste it, it is quite dry, uh, but there is actually residual sugar in this wine. It's not bone dry. It tastes pretty sweet to me. Okay. Yeah, I do like dry wines, but it does taste sweet to me. As well as the taste of the wine, Deborah has also got her eye on the health of Kareem's land. Our soils are relatively sandy soils. They're very well-draining soils. When we look at the impact of sea level rise on a coastal community, she says it's important to look a little bit more inland about how farms are doing, because small changes could have big consequences. Farming on Long Island is, it is very expensive, um, and so keeping farming an economically viable option here on the East End, it, it's difficult. Kareem's business, Palmanok Vineyards, is a mile north of the bay and three miles south of Long Island Sound. It's as inland as you can get anywhere on the Twin Forks. And most of Long Island's farmland is out here, some 30,000 acres. More than 50 farms produce wine on Long Island. Look, we, I think anyone who knows the east end of Long Island knows that it's just this inherently beautiful place. It's, it's surrounded by, you know, by these bodies of water, these beautiful beaches, uh, these lush landscapes, and, and you have these farmers who, in some cases, have been here for generations. Kareem inherited the business from his father. It means the world to him to keep his vineyard going, even if climate change is making it much harder. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. Our bags are packed with support by... Hi, you've reached station manager Rima Dael. Thank you so very much for listening to this wonderful podcast. Now, you've caught me on my drive home and I'm pulling into the garage right now, but one of the things that I do since my drive home is an hour long is I listen to podcasts, podcasts like the very one you're listening to. So if you're interested to support the wonderful news and stories that you hear from WSHU, how about making a gift right now at WSHU.org? Thank you for your support and thank you for listening. For a few years, I lived not too far from Pominock Vineyards. Superstorm Sandy flooded that house and changed those plans for me almost a decade ago. While the winds largely spared parts of Long Island's North Fork, the storm surge did swell the bay and cause flooding for several blocks, 
all the way to the main road where the vineyard is. The flooding saturated the soil with salt water, killing the hostas outside my house. This salt water intrusion continues to be a problem, says Deborah Aller, the agricultural stewardship specialist at Cornell Cooperative Extension. So every crop kind of has a tolerance, um, a salt tolerance level. Um, and if it goes above that, you can get salt toxicity where you'll see burning on the leaves and other symptoms will appear on the crop. Um, one thing we do have um, that's increasing on Long Island because of our proximity and our coastal waters is saltwater intrusion. Kareem is worried his vineyard will be oceanfront property in the future. To use a government term, it, it is a clear and present danger. <laughs> a changing climate presents challenges for farming across Long Island. Deborah says her group has had to work fast to help agriculture thrive under harsher conditions. Climate variability is, is becoming one of the, the biggest issues for our farmers here on Long Island, and it's really about um, adaptation and mitigation. It's how, how can we bring new technologies and best management practices and support our farmers to help them adapt to this climate variability, to these um, more extreme weather events, to these um, to longer periods of drought and then intense heavy rainfall events. Long Island is historically known for its potato farms, but harvests began to struggle in the 1960s as harsher pesticides were banned. By the mid-70s, the first winery opened on the North Fork. Viticulturalists found that the cool breeze coming off of Long Island Sound and the Atlantic Ocean is ideal for growing grapes during the summer into the mellow fall, giving ample time for the fruit to ripen on the vine. Karim takes us on a tour of the vineyard to see how they process the grapes and boost organic matter. Around the back are these large machines. In the case of the white grapes, they, they go directly into our grape press. And in the case, case of the red grapes, they go directly into our destemmer. You mean you don't take your shoes off and don't step on the grapes and all that? Uh, we, <laughs> we, we, we don't do that here, although it, that is a very uh, effective but not a very efficient way of, of pressing grapes. Then, before it goes into several thousand gallon tanks for fermenting, a team of six sorts through the mashup for anything that's not a healthy grape, like leaves, stems, and insects. That is an extra step that allows us to ensure quality even in a difficult vintage when Mother Nature is not working with you. Climate change has kept Deborah and Kareem on their toes to keep wineries productive as the threat of extreme weather intensifies. Kareem says the vineyard has had to harvest grapes sometimes a month earlier in the past to accommodate hurricanes and heavy rainstorms due to climate change. With, with climate change, uh, it's <laughs> You, 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 you're seeing different dates of uh, bud break and bloom and so forth. And the list of direct threats to his crop is extensive. With a changing climate, one of the biggest concerns we, we're, we're, we're facing has to do with disease pressure, with conditions that are more favorable for disease, and how do we, how do we mitigate that in an in a environmentally responsible way. Environmentally responsible because many of the harsh chemical pesticides that help ward off disease are bad for the environment. Some have since been banned for that reason. We are helping growers how to try and reduce pesticides and, and um, nutrients that are applied on the surface because the soil is a natural filter. And what we apply on the surface has the potential to leach into our groundwater and run off into our surface waters. Fertilizers and wastewater on the surface can end up in nearby water bodies within a year. It could absolutely have devastating impacts for 
for the for the wine industry out here. And, and there's a number of invasive species. Um, and because of climate change, these are becoming more prolific and and an issue here. One long established positive practice to mitigate the effects of climate change is cover cropping. Here at the vineyard, Deborah says they have perennial grasses that are planted in between rows of vines. It's good for soil health. A cover crop protects the soil um, and in between the, the trellis rows you see that so you're getting less erosion, you're building organic matter, you're reducing compaction from you know, harvest equipment. The cover crops dig their roots down into the soil and prevent floods from washing the vines away. There are flower and cover crops. There are other grass cover crops. Something like a clover is one of the best things for the pollinators. Pollinators, the bees, butterflies, and other insects that are instrumental in plant growth. Everyone knows, or should know, that they're also in trouble. In fact, a lot of wildlife is threatened because of climate change and human intervention. That's the focus of next episode. Until then, we leave the vineyard to visit a beekeeper. With rising tides and climate change threatening homes, well, we might be able to learn something from the queen honeybee. One bee in that colony is like a cell on our body. That one bee cannot live on its own. The queen cannot live on its own. They need everyone together and it's a cooperative effort and it's all for the common good. That's beekeeper Debbie Kluger. She has a pretty clear outlook on how honeybees can teach coastal communities to be better neighbors to them and each other in the fight against climate change. They will gather nectar for future generations of bees that they've never met, that they will never know their sisters you know down the road. You know you think about not today, not about your grandchildren, think about seven generations out. That's what the honeybees are doing. Debbie and I are heading to some hives she manages at nearby farms. Her business, Bonic Bees, is based in the Hamptons. She also goes to people's houses that have bee infestations. A swarm can settle into someone's walls. A barbecue, a toy box, a bucket, I mean, you name it. But if they get into people's homes, more often than not, people exterminate. And the problem with that, besides the death of the colony, is that Exterminators come, they come poison into your walls, and then they leave. Local law here actually requires for a beekeeper to be called when a swarm of bees are discovered, instead of an exterminator. Only about 20% of them survive in, uh, in the wild. So they, for a variety of reasons, disease, not finding a home, um, you know, being killed. But um, they're gentle, and I go with my bare hands and nothing, and I just capture them, put them in a box, put them in the truck, and you know, go give them a new home. Before you get out of the car, where, yeah. where are we right now? We are at the Stone's Throw Farm. It's an organic farm uh, here in Sagaponic. And Sagaponic is known for having the wealthiest zip code in the country. It's full of multi-million dollar homes, but also lots of farmland. You can tell the difference between the two because of the eight-foot tall Hamptons hedges that keep luxurious estates private. There are 81 million honeybee colonies worldwide, but in the U.S. they are on the decline. Yes, because of intense storms, but also the chemical fertilizers and pesticides that keep Hampton's hedges lush. To say Debbie wants to save the honeybees is an understatement. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of good in this, in this hive right here. Let's see how they're doing. A couple of things you need to know about bee gender roles before we get into these hives today. Number one is girl power. But each colony is one queen. 
There's only one ruler. The first virgin queen to emerge goes around and kills everyone else. It's like Game of Thrones in there. And obviously, if girls rule, then boys drool. The only thing the boys do that we really are for sure, because they do have another purpose, but we're not exactly sure of all their purposes, is that they go out and they mate with a queen from another colony, and they die upon mating. She's a virgin. She's two weeks old. She goes out to the drone congregation area, finds the drones that are all just hanging out, waiting for the queen, <laughs> and for their death sentence if they are successful. <laughs> all hail the queen. Okay, let's get into one of these five beehives. So that little that little crack that we heard, there's not a lot of propolis this time of year, and they're not that concerned with sealing the hive so much because it's not winter time. But come winter time, these things are glued tight. The propolis is the bee glue, and as you can tell by the buzzing, they don't love the idea of a guy with a microphone breaking into their home. Um, here we always check the top. Wow, you know, look at them all. Yeah, aren't they cute? Um, so I know that one of the things that you told me not to wear and not to have today was something fluffy. And so right. this thing that's on the end of my microphone is um, foam? Yeah, that's okay. The thing is is that they can get stuck. So say you had like one of those fuzzy fleece or something, and they would get stuck in it, and then they might end up stinging you. And then once you get stung, it's like a bullseye. So, the, you know, more bees will come to that spot. It's a danger signal. Debbie has me wearing the beekeeper uniform, the white jacket with a hooded veiled bonnet. Still, that sensation you get when you hear a bug flying close to your ear, it's unnerving. Just a heads up, there's going to be a whole lot more of that. By the way, Debbie also has a veiled bonnet, but she's reaching into these boxed beehives, home to 50,000 bees, with her bare hands. But, well, so the honeybee's life basically is um, about six weeks long this time of year. And when they're born, they immediately get to work. They start cleaning. Um, they clean out the cell that they were born in. Then they move on to becoming, um, taking care of the young larvae. Then they start taking care of the older larvae. As their wax glands develop, they can make wax. And, you know, there's housekeeper bees and more uh, undertaker bees that take out the dead and the bees that take care of the queen. So all this stuff goes on inside of the hive, and it's only about the last week of their life that they're going to leave that hive and go out foraging. In their entire life, they collect the nectar to make one-twelfth a teaspoon of honey. And so in a jar of honey, you've got about a thousand bees' whole life's work in a one-pound jar of honey. The honey is attractive to invasive pests and pathogens. If we have this shift to a warmer climate, we're going to have issues with small hive beetles invading hives, say, up in Maine. Um, right now, they are not really, you know, they don't deal with that. Um, you know, and it's interesting, you know, that the, the folks out in Florida have a heck of a time with them. Now, there are many, many bees flying around now, and you are unflinching. They love me. You know, I, I understand their nature. They're busy. They're busy bees. What are they doing? They kind of look like they're walking around. They're kind of walking over each other. They're yeah. sticking their heads into these little See, holes. These two, they're practicing something called tro trophallactus. These are forager bees, so they're coming back and they're showing their sisters, okay, look, I got this, this is what it tastes like. And then they do a little bee dance to show them, and this is where you go get it. What she's pulling from these beehive boxes are frames, with many individual hexagon cells that are covered in nectar before it's reduced into honey. And honeybees, some that are old enough to have jobs, others just being born. This, what you see here, these are drones. These are going to be baby boy bees. And we can tell the difference between drones and workers simply by the size. So um, this would be a worker bee, this little one. And then these bullet-shaped um, cells are baby boy bees. So this frame is pretty darn heavy as well, and it is filled with worker brood. So underneath this capping 
is baby bees. Here's one being born. So she's got to eat her way out of this cell. And look at her right on camera. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's, it's as you said, it's eating its way out. So its head is kind of like eating around the crust of one of these Im impacted um, hive cones. I would like you to um, place your instruments down and grab this frame because I want to give you the idea of the weight of it. And I'd like you to just grab that. Oh, my. Oh, wow, that's heavy. Oh, it's like gooey on the inside. Look at that. That's so cool. That's Smell so it. cool. Oh, that's that's sweet. It's yeah. so, such a sweet um, smell. It almost smells like like uh, like wildflower kind of. So this is wildflower honey, as far as I'm concerned. Up oh, here's another one. Look at her. Hey, girl. Happy birthday. Look, they're walking all over her. They're like, get out. Let's get to work. No rest for the just born. Yep, and here's a drone. And boy bees, I always can introduce them to children who are, you know, sometimes afraid. They cannot sting. They don't have a stinger. <laughs> Look at you. So he's crawling up my finger right now. He's probably about the size of my fingernail um, in, in length. Um, he's like a really pale but golden color, um, as a honeybee, I guess, would be. Um, he's got these big, gorgeous black eyes and... Um, uh, antenna that are going crazy smelling my hand. <laughs> so the eyes are so large they cover the whole top of his head so that he can spot that queen in the, dr in the drone congregation area that we were talking about. Oh. Yeah. I'm playing it super cool but I'm slightly freaking out. There are more than just a few bees now on me. I try to think about something else, about how Debbie believes in the precautionary principle that environmental scientists like her are trained in. First you figure out if harm will be had by this practice, you know, and then, you know, you wouldn't do it. But here, we don't practice that. We kind of try to mitigate our harm after the fact. It'd be better to figure things out first to, you know, be a more gentler approach to things, I think. By following this guideline, she says we have a better chance at not worsening our impact on the environment. Well, it's an investment in the future, not just about the bees, it's about our children, it's about the wildlife, it's about everything that has to also cohabitate on this earth. This is not our earth, you know, it, it, it's, it's everyone's earth, and, you know, we're, we're not outside of nature, we're part of nature. Because if we don't pay attention now... Ah. Did you get stung? Uh, yeah. We might get stung by the consequences. Can I scrape the stinger out? Okay. Are you okay? Yeah. How'd that feel? Good? Oh, yeah. Felt, <laughs> felt like a dream. So I think you were sticking your hand. Music is an essential part of the video game experience. In fact, it often stays with you long after the game is over. Hear how composers create these memorable soundtracks using everything from massive orchestras and choruses to espresso machines in my podcast, Music Respawn with Kate Remington. I talk with the industry's most influential composers and rising stars with plenty of music so you can enjoy it even without a controller. Check out Music Respawn at WSHU.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Back when we were at the vineyard, Cornell agricultural specialist Deborah Aller, the soil expert, said something else that left a mark on me. Our aquifer, obviously, that's the source of drinking water for over 3 million people on Long Island. 
um, and we all know it is um, contaminated with with nitrogen and, and pesticides and other things. Including chemical fertilizers that are used by farmers, but also used in landscaping to keep those suburban lawns lush. But we learned of a crop in a previous episode that's a good replacement for these fertilizers. Farmers have been using kelp for forever. Um, any farmer that's really grown near the water it knows it's an excellent um, amendment for their soil. Sugar kelp in particular to for bioextraction, so actual removal of nutrients from our waters to clean our waters and taking those and then applying it back to our agricultural land. So to figure out how this old technique could help replace some of our current harmful practices, we hit the road in search of a kelp to fertilizer operation. And as it turns out, a few entrepreneurs have gone all in on a startup. Danielle Hobson Bagun and Waban Tarrant are members of the Shinnecock Indian Nation, a federally recognized tribe in eastern Long Island. They're part of a six-woman team that runs the tribe's kelp farm. It's actually quite beautiful. It's um, not obtrusive in the water. You really just see, depending on whether we're further out in the water or close to the, um, the shore, you really don't see the kelp that's underwater. It has to stay underwater uh, for it to survive. You collect kelp from, like, from the wild? and then take the, the seeds and grow them in a tank on a string and then when they're ready put them out in the bay. The further out we go there are um, kind of balloon buoy system that um, the lines stretch between. Their ancestors used to use kelp as a tool to insulate their homes and feed livestock but this sugar kelp farm is actually pretty new. They're working with the aquaculture group Green Wave to develop farming practices in Shinnecock Bay on the south side of the island. The tribe's territory is in the Hamptons. Development of the land around them has boxed them in, next to mega mansion summer homes that cost tens of millions of dollars with manicured landscapes, similar to the ones that we saw earlier with beekeeper Debbie. Tila Trogue is another Shinnecock kelp farmer. If you look at what's going on with the fertilizer, it's being shipped in. Um, there's a huge carbon footprint that's involved with just trucking it here. They were only here for a couple of months out of the year, but yet they were using so much um, fertilizer um, to maintain this, uh, like, basically fake. Lawn. The women's goal is to eliminate some of that carbon footprint by offering a locally grown kelp fertilizer that's actually better for the environment. That's just full of all kinds of nutrients that are needed to sustain, um, you know, healthy plant life. And so um, there's so many ways that we can like take action now to break these cycles. There will be no way to mitigate or adapt. The kelp farm in some ways is an effort to reclaim the water. Tila says the Hamptons pollution is just one of the many nails in the coffin that have buried their coastal way of life. And um, since the 
settlers first arrived here in 1640, they never installed any type of sewers, no type of wastewater treatment, and so all of all of their homes, f since time immemorial, um, at least 10,000 years, have depended on uh, this water for fish and shellfish. You know, the the lack of wastewater treatment has basically killed off our entire food source. So we're really in a crisis situation. We're going to continue this conversation with the Shinnecock in a future episode about how they have lost their traditions over the last 350 years. <laughs> you want, who you be, what you need, why you talking to me, don't be quiet, I'm a needle to the weave, better talk or you'll fall through the seams, spit it out, what's your play, think you're slick with your bag, or what it tricks, I'm not fooled by the shape of your lips, just a suit in the shape of a tick. Higher Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Garone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Kelly Hills Mucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. This podcast was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. For more, go to WSHU.org. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. Sew it up, close a rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why. There isn't nothing here at all Sew it up, close a rip Put a nice little plaque on the slip I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh No one needs ever know start the show Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand How you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind And you go where it tells you to go But you never wonder why There isn't nothing here at all